VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, November the 1st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get at it. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So I suppose the question that will be asked amongst your friends and family and co-workers today, how many trick-or-treaters did you get? This year, we got just about the exact same number we got last year. 43 trick-or-treaters at my door. Dave Williams says he had six. I see some people tweeting out from CBS and Paradise. They got like 150. So, obviously, a big disparity in the frequency of trick-or-treaters in different spots in and around town. But wherever you are, how many trick-or-treaters did you get? On top of the 43 trick-or-treaters, we had two young high schoolers that came to the door. They were the last knock on the door. And they were doing a food drive. Look for some non-perishables. So good on those two young fellas. Hopefully they had a successful evening. And yeah, a friend of mine who's a member of the Legion asked me to throw it out there this morning that the Legion is in desperate need of your support, and a lot of that comes with the money generated through the poppy campaign. So maybe it's not for all, but certainly I'm wearing a poppy, and hopefully you can support the Legion by dropping a few quid in the collection box when you get yourself a poppy. Okay. This is a magnificent achievement. A big shout-out this morning to a member of the Mount Pearl, Maryland swim team. His name is Chris Weeks. He just swam the fastest 50-meter fly time in Canadian history for 17 and under at the FINA World Cup of 2022, which is happening in Toronto. So Chris Weeks from Mount Pearl, the fastest time in Canadian history for the 50-meter fly, which is not an easy stroke either. So congratulations, Chris. That's magnificent stuff. We produce a fair number of uh, top-quality swimmers around here. And Baseball NL, they just gave out their annual awards. I'll pepper the week with a few mentions. Let's stick with some players for today. Jenny Murphy is the minor female player of the year. Alex McGraw is the minor male player of the year. Alex comes by his talent, uh, honestly, as they say. Alex's father, Paul, friend of mine, terrific baseball player, member of the Provincial Baseball Hall of Fame. Jada Lee, of course, who made headlines across the country. She's the major female player of the year. And Cam Pennell is the major male player of the year in baseball 2022. Terrific stuff. A little bit further afield. But it was 125 years ago today in 1897 that the old lady, as they call it, Juventus Football Club was founded by a bunch of high schoolers in Turin, Italy. They are the absolute juggernaut of Italian football. They hold the record for every one of the domestic titles available, including Serie A, where they've won 36 times, the Coppa Italia, they've won 14 times, and the Supercoppa Italiana, which they've won nine times, Juventus. Pretty cool. And, of course, Canada preparing for the World Cup this month, coming up in Qatar. If you'd like to chime in on that, you know what to do. Now, this is an amazing one. Can you imagine there was ever a time anyone had the guts to get in the net to play ice hockey without a face mask on? It was today in 1959 that Jacques Plante became the first NHL netminder to don a fiberglass face mask. When you look at some of the faces of the maskless goaltenders over the years, it's basically a cross-stitch. It's just remarkable that they would stand in front of that puck without a mask on. But Jacques Plante, today in history, first sported the face mask. Let's turn to the arts for a second. If you've ever had the opportunity to visit Italy, for many people, a trip to view the Sistine Chapel is absolutely there. You go to the Vatican, it's one of the tourist attractions. Of course it is. Today, for the first time, it was unveiled to the public in 1512. 
So Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel is considered the crowning achievement in painting. It's 12,000 square foot canvas, took four years to complete, and when you read some of the stories about how he had to approach painting the ceilings, really quite, a, a, quite amazing, pardon me, 1512, public unveiling of the paintings on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. We had an opportunity to go, and when you visit, it's such a solemn place, they ask you to be still and quiet when you enter in small groups inside the Sistine Chapel. And they ask you not to take photographs, but of course, as soon as the doors close, snap, 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 people yakking away, just can't hold their breath for, you know, just a little tiny bit. Anyway, this is sticking with the arts. Less cultured, though. So, the streaming services that are so popular, Netflix being the number one that first came on the scene 15 years ago, it basically changed the way people view television, and it certainly changed the model for network television. So now they know that they're kind of getting caught up in so many other uh, competing streaming services, and so they're losing money, and they're going to change their pay model. Now, if you'd like to go with what the standard is, you know, and no interruptions with uh, television commercials, you can still do it, but they're going to give you an opportunity to pay $5.99 a month, but the catch is... There's going to be interspersed ads, just like as if you're watching network television. So the competition is there, but which way are you going to go with the new Netflix model? Okay. I want to say good morning, congratulations, and keep it up to Christy Allen. So it's been widely covered in the news, and justifiably so. She has just marked her 100th week of protesting for better access to long-term mental health care. And the sign that she's had is really quite self-explanatory. Long-term mental health care needs to be more accessible. She began the protest back in the fall of 2020 outside the Waterford. She's now taken the protest weekly to the Confederation Building. She does indeed give kudos and thanks to many of her friends and supporters who have joined her for the protest. There's a real remarkable photograph where she held the protest one week in her wedding dress on her wedding day. You know, it's being talked about in the House of Assembly. We've had Christy on this program. I think she's done a lot to open up the conversation, not only about access to long-term mental health supports, but also just the conversations in general about mental health, mental illness, mental wellness, to help us better understand exactly what the differences are and the different approaches required for treatment, long-term, and, of course, short-term accessibility. So, Christy, great stuff. I mean, it's really important. Just think of the power that we all have as individual citizens to be the advocates, to be the champion, to take up the torch for one cause or another. So we can talk about family doctors, and we will continue to do so. But when you see stats like there's a 45% vacancy for psychologists just in Eastern Health alone, and the wait list of two and three years to see psychologists. And we had a doctor on the show yesterday, Dr. Shannon Mackey, talking about the inability to even get some of his patients a, a visit with a psychiatrist. So, bravo, Christy, and for anyone else out there who is the champion for one cause or another, please do put their names forward. Be part of this program. Come on and tell us your story. So the more we talk about it, hopefully the better things come. So, anyway, Christy's a real powerhouse. And, of course, she's been raising money for the Jacob Puddison Memorial Foundation. They offer free counseling to youth between 15 and 25, I think it is. Some $15,000 has been raised there, so everything about that story is positive other than the fact that she still sees the glaring gaps. We still know how many people are struggling to get the long-term supports they need for their mental health. So Christy Allen, 100 weeks, and not going to stop here, I suppose. But anyway, big fan of Christy. And I just mentioned, we spoke with uh, Dr. Shannon Mackey yesterday. He's a family physician here in the province about some of the issues that he sees that is making the system 
inefficient, and it's probably going a long way for the inability to recruit, retain new family doctors. This story is not in an effort to say, well, the province is not alone, but we're not alone. The provinces, province to province to province, experiencing very similar problems inside the delivery of healthcare. This story comes from the province of British Columbia, and it speaks directly to one of the concerns brought forward by Dr. Mackey yesterday, and that's how they get paid. So they're making a legislative amendment to change the pace or the pace model, pardon me, for family doctors in BC. So right now, they do the same thing we do. They have a fee-for-service model in place. So at this point, they pay about $30 per patient visit to the doctors. doesn't matter if they're treating the common cold, strep throat, or some complex chronic health problem. Now they're changing it. The new model is going to take a bunch of things into consideration. How much time a doctor spends with the patient, the complexity of their needs, the number of patients a doctor sees daily, administrative costs, and the total number of patients a doctor supports through their office. The cost of operating in that province is somewhere between the, uh, the operating your practice, somewhere between eighty and $85,000 per year. The number of people without a family doctor in BC in a per capita number is very similar to here. In 2003, there was 340,000 people in BC without a family doctor. That number in 2017, is the last numbers that they had available, was 908,000. One in five British Columbians do not have a family doctor. So what this speaks to is not only that the problems are similar across the country, but just how competitive it is. We're really fighting against each other to try to achieve the same goals. So the family doctors in BC at this moment in time get paid about $250,000 per year. This new plan under a three-year physician master agreement is going to see them getting paid around $385,000 per year. So while the province, and they announced yesterday there's a couple of more incentive packages coming in the near future, but this just paints a picture of just how competitive it is. Imagine, you know, with all of the things regarding amenities and access and cost of travel and relationship with the health authorities, and yes, the rate of pay, and yes, the whole uh, work-life balance that needs to be struck, because the way people are willing and wanting to work has changed. Whether or not you think that's a good or a bad thing, it just happens to be the reality. So that's what BC is doing. There are some plans to adjust how physicians get paid in this province. Will it be enough to keep what we have and to bring more into the fold? Remains to be seen. But I wanted to paint that picture here because that's just indicative of what we're seeing across the country and how provinces are trying to do everything possible to ease the number of citizens who do not have access to a family doctor. And we know what the complications are down the road. And sticking with BC for a second, simply because the story that I read that planted the seed in my mind about housing concerns, especially for uh, university students. Simon Fraser University, they have a home share program which matches up students with seniors. The students get a break on the rent in exchange for some assistance with household chores. Not personal care for the senior. Painting the fence and shoveling the sidewalk and shoveling the driveway and taking out the garbage and washing the dishes, whatever the case may be. It was once at Memorial University, no longer is. We spoke with Sherry Ritter. It was either last week or the week before. She was a former director of the program. Just talking about how effective it was. And the price tag was in and around $30,000 a year from the provincial government. And it went by the wayside because of funding. Just look at the problems we have now with seniors who need some help and students without a place to live or the affordability issue associated with rent. So bring back the home share program to all the colleges and the university here in the province. It really would go a long way. 
to making things a little bit easier on a variety of fronts. Okay, sticking with the old healthcare again for one moment. Out of nowhere, yesterday, comes an announcement from the Premier and a couple of ministers regarding the fact that they're going to replace the 100-year-old hospital that is St. Clair's. So it opened in 1922. There's no debate as to whether or not St. Clair's needs to be replaced, but it's a kind of a curious piece of timing here. Now, some people will automatically say, this is just trying to change the narrative, change the channel. But we all know we can consider multiple and various issues at the exact same time. So this doesn't take away our focus on the concerns that people talk about and are sharing on this program, but they're going to build a new hospital. This is where it kind of feels like it came out of nowhere, is no idea where it's going to be built, when it's going to be built, how much it's going to cost, what a P3 partnership looks like, but some inclination that there might be a new hospital built on the site of the Grace. The Grace is a real eyesore. It's just a, a nice piece of infrastructure for vandals and people to sneak in and do whatever they do when they get inside the facility. You know, the old nursing quarters and whatnot. It's got to be dealt with. No question there's going to be a huge price tag for the remediation, whether it be asbestos or otherwise. So there might be a hospital there. I don't know. They're talking about including childcare and early childhood education space inside the hospital. That's a good thing. There is going to be an approach using a private-public partnership, which many people are wary of. It has some short-term relief insofar as government monies, but governments have access to a much better interest rate for any borrowing required for the construction phase and the operating phase. It's a potential 30-year agreement. There is a lot of evidence out there that some of these P3s that feel good, look good, smell good early on end up costing governments more in the long run. So that's part of the plan here. Of course, we've entertained the P3 model for a variety of things, including some of the new long-term care facilities. Very similar uh, structure for the contract, say for 30 years and what have you. So kind of came out of nowhere. But here's the automatic reaction from opposition parties and many people in the general public. If we have an issue with shortages of healthcare professionals and all the spats about scope of practice and work-life balance and all the rest of it, is this the time for a new focus on bricks and mortar while we're trying to deal with the immediacy of the concerns in the system itself? The Premier says they don't have to be mutually exclusive, and that's fair. New, modern facility may indeed be an attractive option inside the incentive packages put forward by the government and the health authorities, but anyway... It kind of came out of nowhere for me, and I don't think people are wrong to say, one, what's the P3 look like? Is it really the best idea? And two, what does that really mean for addressing the right-now short-term concerns with refilling, whether it be family doctors or any other discipline, LPNs, nurse practitioners, social workers, pharmacists, you know the deal. Don't want to leave anyone out. But anyway, that's the thing. You want to talk about it? Let's go. Moving to education. So we know the decision has been made to integrate or amalgamate the school district into the department itself. So there aren't going to be amendments made to the school Schools Act. So there's going to be in the establishment of a provincial advisory council on education. They're going to have a direct pipeline to the minister to voice concerns regarding education, advise the minister on issues inside the K-12 system, so no longer the requirement for a school board. What that means in real terms, it's hard to say, but It'd be nice to know exactly how that is going to look and feel when it's all the transition has been completed. And one last mention, well, not one last, a continued mention of the fact that 
The concept of learning loss, I just haven't heard much in the way of a pragmatic, realistic approach to addressing what is very real. And in many provinces, they've adjusted the curriculum to know where students are based on the fits and starts and the stops and starts and the learning from home and some of the gaps that are so very real to make sure that we just don't jump ahead to the next year's curriculum that it would be in place pre-pandemic because it probably isn't appropriate. We're not going to have people as prepared as they need to be, whether it be jumping from primary to elementary to junior to high school to post-secondary. We have not heard much on how and why the government are looking at, dealing with, and addressing the learning loss that is absolutely real for many young students in this province. So, yeah, let's take that on. Uh, quick mention in the fishery. We know, <laughs> I mean, every year very similar problems persist in the fishery. You know, whether it be how many of the species, the stocks, are in the danger zone. So now the government has proposed adding, this is the federal government, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, adding 62 stocks to a regulatory list. That means if they arrive in a place where they're in peril, the health status is uncertain, this is the second wave. In the first wave, there was 30 stocks added to this regulatory list, now another 62. What it means is if they arrive in the position where they're deemed to be unhealthy or the future of the stock is uncertain, the minister is obligated to implement a rebuilding plan within three years. It seems to me that this is amazing, that it's 2022 before this approach has been taken for the strength and the health of the stocks. Now, you know, there's a couple of species in this province that are added to this list, and one of them being capelin. We know there's not enough science in place regarding capelin and or mackerel and things like that. As a forage fish and its position in the food chain, of course it's got to be on the list, but it still amazes me that we have not had. Just think about how long ago the cod moratorium was imposed here and what it meant to the province at the time and how many people left as a result. And we're still looking at rebuilding some sort of commercially viable cod stock. And here we are all these later with just coming up with a legislative approach to protect the stocks, to see the long-term viability of the fishery. Worth over a billion dollars. It's hard to know how many people are employed directly or indirectly. It's certainly in the tens of thousands and all the supplies that they consume to keep their enterprises going. But anyway, that's a move made by DFO. A bit late in the game, but there you go. And this story, people have asked me to speak to it, and I'm absolutely happy to do so. It's regarding the future for Shirley Cox. She's an 82-year-old woman that used a wheelchair, and she lives in the Riverhead Towers here in the city of St. John's. She was scheduled to be evicted yesterday. The city hasn't told her why she's being evicted. There's some thought given to the fact that because she's a smoker, and when she goes outside to smoke, she doesn't smoke in her apartment. When she goes outside to smoke, she smokes close by the front door. There's a smoking area, but she can't get to it because the path is inaccessible. So they're not telling her why. There is no wheelchair-accessible lodging available for her right away. So what is going on here? It seems to be pretty heavy-handed. If it's about smoking then it's incumbent on the city to make the pathway to the smoking area accessible for people in a wheelchair. An 82-year-old lady worth nowhere to go? If someone knows the status of Miss Cox this morning, please do let us know so we can talk about it a bit more here on the program. So uh, here's one of the quotes coming from the folks who sent me a letter. Miss Cox has expressed that she will not be forced into a care home, which is her right as a competent, independent adult. She has also said that she likes living at Riverhead Towers as she has formed friendships there and that moving would isolate her from the community. So, we do know that she might be at heightened risk if she uh, lives in a shelter. This comes from a report, uh, or pardon me, an executive director of an organization called Solutions for Seniors. 
They say the elevated risk of exploitation and physical or mental violence because of her disability, gender, and advanced age. Research suggests that women who are disabled experience various forms of abuse and violence at the rate of 50 to 100% higher than average. So please someone inform me as to what's going on with Shirley Cox today so we can keep the conversation going. Okay, what does this say? All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. Let's have a great show. That means you have to pick up the phone and get in the queue. Don't go away. I mentioned that Jenny Murphy is the minor female baseball player of the year. Her father, Trevor Mur- Murphy, who's a terrific fella and a big part of the baseball and hockey community here in the province. Okay, let's keep going. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board on line number one. Good morning, Gus Echegary. You're on the air. Good morning to you, Patty, and thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Patty, I'm listening to your uh, remarks a few minutes ago. I wondered if you uh, uh, think the government of Canada and... Uh, probably more so the government of Newfoundland, or even some of the participants in the fishery of Newfoundland today, give a damn about the recovery or the restoration of the resources that we delivered to Canada in 1949? I think the short answer is not really. No, and not only that, but there's miles of documented information to show that the government of Canada has mismanaged one of the greatest, largest uh, ground fisheries in the world, the most diversified fisheries in the world. And you just mentioned, for example, not only codfish and uh, the ground fishery of redfish and uh, so on and so on, but also capelin, the pelagics, mackerel, herring, and so on. And, you know, these are at rock bottom, at rock bottom, after all those years of mismanagement by the government of Canada. I've sent you a few notes mm-hmm. uh, in preparation for this this, uh, this morning. One of them, uh, you might notice, maybe you didn't have the chance to uh, read it, but I entered the fishery in 1947, and in uh, 1949, we entered Confederation. And at that time, we... Newfoundland, the Newfoundland fishing industry was of such a size and value that it elevated Canada from 14th to 6th place in the world as a fish exporting nation. From an article that you sent me from the Daily News, May of 1950. That's right, sir. Mm -hmm. And, Penny, today we are at the bottom of the barrel. Fortunately, fortunately... The seasonal crab fishery has saved the day because if, if the crab fishery hadn't come on board and uh, developed in the last few years, we would be in a very sorry state, as it is. We are, at, let's face it, we're at the bottom of the barrel, and we're facing disaster. Now, I called actually on Friday, which was too late, to respond to three callers you had on Friday. And since then, I've had discussions with some of the best people that I know in the fishing industry in Canada, particularly in Newfoundland, and and my views about this, and uh, they totally agree. But we have a situation where nobody seems to give a damn. My goodness gracious, we lost 80,000 people of our population in 1992, 30 years ago, 30 years ago. 
And there were 30,000 jobs involved that were lost. And not a damn thing has been done by the government of Canada, nothing, nothing, and I mean nothing, to uh, restore the resource that they have destroyed. And the same thing goes, you know, the government, successive governments of Newfoundland have failed to put the pressure on the government of uh, Canada to, to restore the fishery, which is of all importance and great importance to the hundreds of fishing communities in Newfoundland, including, by the way, the, the, uh, the uh, people, uh, rather the businesses in St. John's who uh, provide, uh, f- you know, facilities and uh, various parts of uh, various uh, requirements for the fishing industry and so on. But nevertheless... They've done nothing, absolutely nothing. The government of Newfoundland has failed to, to impress the government with having to move on it. And on top of that, our industry has deteriorated to a point where they're quite satisfied with what we have today. Can you imagine our representatives in Ottawa? I'm looking at a document right now and an expression by a member of uh, a federal member of this uh, province stating Newfoundland and Labrador was built on the fishery and and goes on to talk about how important the fishery is and how important it is today, et cetera, et cetera. In the same district of that person, that, that MP, uh, six major plants are shut down after 30 or 40 years of operation, close to 5,000 people out of jobs, never to be restored on the basis of the, uh, of the action or reaction to the loss of that resource by the government and so on. So we're in a desperate situation here. And, you know, uh, as I said at the beginning, or, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the fact that I wanted to respond to these uh, three people who were on your pro- program on Friday. Uh, one of them was the Minister of uh, Resource, Resources, and he was enthusiastically talking about, you know, the future of Newfoundland with respect to, uh, to the non-renewable minerals and, uh, and the oil industry. But, uh, you know, as far as I know, uh, fish uh, is also a resource, is not mentioned by that minister for the simple reason there is any to talk about. Then the other two gentlemen that were on, the Minister of Fisheries and, and the uh, President of the, F- of the, uh, of the Union, uh, were on talking uh, mainly about foreign ownership. And I think you were asking some uh, leading questions that I'm not sure you got an answer to. But, uh, but the fact is that you're talking about foreign ownership coming into Newfoundland to, to do what? There's no fish to catch. There's no, there's no investment to be made in a fish that's in the water. What they're interested in is buying what we have left of the industry here in Newfoundland. Yeah, the concern about the foreign uh, approach, uh, I don't know what you mean by asking them leading questions. I was just trying to get some understanding of where people think the breaking point is for the percentage of foreign ownership here, especially Absolutely. when we have... So I, I understand the question. I understand the significance of it. But okay. the fact remains that we don't have a resource for foreign countries who invest in it unless it's to acquire ownership of what little we have left. And I can tell you today, Patty, in this world, 
Uh, you know the, uh, the, the great concern today in the world about food security, that every nation in the world today that has access to fish are trying to get their hands on, on, on it as a renewable resource that is going to have some part to play in this food security problem that's facing the world. And that's why they're here. It's, by the way, that same country that we're talking about at the present time that's already in, uh, in operation in Newfoundland, they're fishing our resource. They are fishing our resource on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland today. The same fishery that the Newfoundland fishermen have been excluded out by, from by a moratorium that was issued in 1992. They're fishing that same resource, bringing it back to their own country, fish uh, that's uh, including cod, that is certainly avoiding, uh, certainly having an impact on the recovery, if there's any hope, whatever, recovery of the resource. Yeah, and I mean, inside the world of foreign ownership, which is absolutely about control of the quota, I would assume, is just how, what percentage of various species are actually fished by and landed by Newfoundland and Labrador harvesters versus other countries. And we know, like, some of, these, some of the numbers are extraordinary. We fish about 6% of the turbot that's taken out of our waters. I mean, that's, how can that have ever been the case? So as much as we say there's nothing here to fish, if we had, you know, for instance, inside the amendments made to the Fisheries Act, and you know much more about the industry than I do. If we simply enshrined in legislation the concept and the principle of adjacency to be the guiding light for how we adjudicate and uh, deliver and dole out quotas, we would go a long way into improving the plight of especially the inshore harvester. Gone would be some of the deals that we've struck with other countries. Gone would be the fight between the inshore and the offshore, for the most part. Nothing deals with it in full. But if we were just guided by adjacency alone, we could solve a few things, add in some more realistic approach to bycatch in the buddy system or what have you. But... Uh, I'll say this very quickly, then I'll give you the last word. You wonder why politicians haven't done enough to protect the industry? I would suggest we've had very few, if any, fishery ministers provincially and federally that fully understand the industry itself, like some people who have been in it for decades. And whether or not they've even listened to any guidance coming from people like yourself, I think is debatable. So I don't know if we've not, not been able to achieve positive strides because we don't really know exactly what we're doing or what we're talking about. And then yeah. the push and pull between the feds and the province has made it even muddier. Yeah, Petty, one last uh, point. Okay. Adjacency is important, no question in the world about it and all the rest. But let me tell you, the basic, basic problem to the problems in Newfoundland that are not present in the Maritimes or Quebec is the fact that the government of Canada refused to extend jurisdiction to, to uh, cover the continental shelf, instead only to 200 miles, Fair. which in fact has left the most prolific fishing areas adjacent to Newfoundland and to the east coast of Canada, exposed to the same vicious foreign fishing, overfishing, that continues to this day. It's simply because they did not. And it goes right back, by the way, to October in 1971, when Pierre Trudeau wrote of a, 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 a... I sent you a copy, by the way. You did? Of a, of a, a telex that he had sent to Joe Smallwood 
in October of 1971 that he guaranteed extension of jurisdiction to 300 to uh, cover the continent itself, in which case, if he had done so, we would never be talking about this this morning. Instead, he reneged, uh, as has happened so many times since. I appreciate the time and all the information you've been sending along, Gus. I hope you're well. Thank you very much, Pat. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, Nick's in the queue to talk about Sinclair's, and then we're going out to the CBS at the Community Garden. We'll see what's up there with Steve Pretty after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Nick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Um, just uh, catching wind of this new uh, hospital that uh, Premier Fury is talking about building. I mean, we have greater needs than a hospital right now. Uh, yes, it's nice to see a nice, shiny new hospital. You know, it helps with everything. But right now, we don't have enough doctors, nurses, uh, teachers, and the list goes on in our uh, province that we could be uh, doing. Uh, like small communities out there that got to travel two and three hours just to get to a hospital or or even an hour and a half. Sometimes that, that means a lot. Uh, give these people all a little updated clinics. We don't need another big hospital right now in St. John's. I mean, I don't have no issues with finding the family doctor, but there's 100 and, 150,000 people, I think, somewhere around there that do. So if you want to start... Uh, you know, doing something for healthcare. Start recruiting. Fill the spaces you got now. They don't even have enough uh, emergency rooms open. I mean, they're all closing across the islands on certain days, and you hear about it all the time. People with no emergencies uh, to go to, no doctors for a family doctor. I mean, this is the needs that people have right now. And you look at the school, the school boards. Their short teeth are so bad, it's not even funny. I mean, you know, this is the needs that need to be uh, dealt with right now, not building schools, not putting brand new high schools on Portugal Cove that no one even were asked for, which is blow, blows me away that he even bring the idea up. But anyways, uh, yeah, I think this is just a total waste of money. Uh, someone needs to put the, this liberal government in check and start putting reality before uh, dreams. That's why I look at it. And it's just, uh, you know, it's got to stop somewhere. Yeah, like, I mean, the emergency rooms, diversions have been eased, but, I mean, we're entering to the 19th week where the emergency room in Whitburn has been closed. St. Lawrence is uh, well over a month. So I've, some things have happened there, but just let me put this out there and see how you, uh, see what you'd like to say about it. The population of the Northeast Avalon has grown by some 25% since 2000. The St. Clair's is 100 years old. There's no denying replacing St. Clair's is probably required, but the timing is just odd. And you point to the fact, which is indisputable, the shortages are the reality here. Do you think the shortages could be potentially addressed with a new modern facility that could have teaching opportunities that are not available in St. Clair's? Do you think some of the shortages we see in some uh, physician positions that are vacant across the province are as much to do with where they are versus the government's want to fill them? Well, you know, you look at Alberta, Fort McMurray, is, uh, they get like a northern allowance uh, for being uh, living where they're too because they're so-called isolated, <laughs> which blows me away. Uh, maybe they, what we should be doing is uh, all these small communities out there give a better, uh, how do you say it, allowance for people. They say if uh, you got someone going down in uh, Joe Bat's arm, you got a doctor going down there, you know, there's not much of a life down there like outside, like a, like a city life type 
what I'm saying is that, you know, give a better uh, bonus for that, that area. Give bonuses like for uh, better, better for Bell Island because you're pretty much isolated over there as well. Uh, just look at the area and judge the wage accordingly, saying, okay, you know, if Dr. So-and-so wants to go over to, uh, say, Bay de Verk, well, guess what? The bonus over there, this is what it is. Make it uh, more realistic than just paying all the doctors the same amount of money, whether they're in St. John's or in Joe Bat's arm or wherever they're to. I mean, you just got to got more or less put an, put an initiative in place that's going to draw the attention of these doctors wanting to go there. Well, and I, mean, they, I think some of those things people are trying to do, and I'm only looking for solutions here, yeah. and I don't care what party's in power. Um, if, like, for instance, if a family doctor sets up shop in rural Newfoundland or Labrador and has a patient roster complete in three years, they're going to give them a $100,000 bonus. So some of those tailor-made policies, they're trying to, but I don't know what the uptake will be for them. You mentioned the Northern Allowance. That's a federal tax credit. So, I mean, even when I lived in Jasper, we got the yeah, Northern Allowance, and I was only four hours from Calgary, so I never really understood it. But, you know, paying and creating... Uh, incentives tailor-made to one community or another is absolutely imperative. No one can argue that point with you. Yeah, but I do think that, you know, the timing is curious with St. Clair's, and there's no dispute. We don't even know when or where or how it's going to be built. But would it not be attractive for a graduating med student wherever, with all the incentives in place to come, with a new modern hospital to work in, <laughs> and what that means for doctors and training opportunities and those types of things? I think that might be something down the line, but does that mean it's a good idea to make that announcement now? When it doesn't come with any detail, it makes people suspicious. That's just the way the world works. Take care of the problems we got now. Never mind building a new hospital. Yes, it's nice and fancy and everything else, and it'll draw maybe a few doctors, but right now, we need doctors, nurses taken care of, nurses around burnout, and uh, it's just to the point that I think this is more or less looking toward uh, buying votes in my eyes like trying to get voters to get on back with on board his back and to me is just a total farce waste of money and take care of the issues now that's my that's my outtake of it i'm not here to you know cut anybody apart or anything but i just uh, i just think that the, this government wastes so much money like a forensic audit of every department of government should have been done as soon as they walked in the door especially uh, after them going out and spending all that money on the green report showing nobody what's even in the report but yes, didn't read as much as went then done the friends who got it. So like, no, the Green Report is publicly available. Well, okay, I have. I thought I never heard that. But anyways, uh, what I'm saying is that every department should be like under a microscope and seeing where they can cut corners and see where they can reduce money. And then there's other departments out there. That, I mean, they're crying for work workers. I mean, but you know, they just can't get them. And I mean, as far as it goes with a hundred year old hospital. I mean, I don't think age really matters when it comes to buildings because, uh, my Jesus, the, that uh, penitentiary they got down there, what is that, 300 years old? Yeah, they're building a new one. I know, but how long did it take for it? Well, you know, I don't know if there was a political appetite to replace the Her Majesty's Penitentiary. That's one of those things, very much unlike healthcare infrastructure. People are happy enough to see healthcare infrastructure built, but there wasn't a political will or want for people to want to spend money to build a penitentiary. It's just the way that we think about criminal justice. If you find yourself incarcerated down there, you're not worth anybody's concern. That's a lot of consensus out there. That's how people think. So when politicians were talking about building penitentiaries, the same pushback that you're offering this morning was always the way. Well, we can't be building a new penitentiary. We have all these other distinct needs that need to be addressed. So that's a very similar circumstance to how uh, you view I mean, the St. Clair's conversation. That. What? 
that, that's like uh, you know something that is needed. I mean, you're sticking people in there like animals. I mean, that's that's needed. But at the other end of it all, okay. uh, they they may want to try it. I'm not sure if they have or not. Maybe offer uh, some of these doctors that are uh, graduating, um, you know, a type of uh, compensation that to clear up their uh, medical uh, student loans. I mean, that's an easy way to win there, I would think. Yeah, they're talking about that, that in British Columbia. Yeah, there's good ideas out there. British Columbia is talking about that, about your medical school bills that are left over upon graduation and some support there. They're also changing the fee-for-service model to a salaried model in British Columbia. There are things that we could and should be doing. The problem with the med school, as far as I can tell, is we've had stories in the media where graduates are saying that no one even approached them. How about staying here? How can that possibly be? Every single bum and every single of the 80 seats, we should be all over them from day one, talking about opportunities, describing the upsides and the incentives to practice here or in Cornerbrook or in Burgio or in Lab City, whatever the case may be. So, I mean, start there is probably a, an excellent uh, an excellent place to, uh, place to begin. I'll give you the last word, Nick. Go ahead. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just the final word here. Maybe uh, if they create a HR department for all government that's not politically induced, uh, basically to hire doctors, hire anybody that's needed, like with specialties that, uh, you know, that politicians got no influence over, that might work and put a, put money aside for this department so they can actually recruit doctors and nurses and whatever other trades or anybody that needs to be uh, recruited. Yeah, the, well, they have established a new position, the Deputy Minister in Health and Community Services, Dr. Megan Hayes. That's her sole job is recruitment and re- retention of healthcare professionals. She's got the toughest job in the province. Well, just keep Fury out of it, does all, and uh, I get something done. Thanks, Nick. Have a great day. You too, man. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, we appreciate Stephen's patience, but we do have to get to a break, even though we're over time. And when we come back, we're going, as mentioned, out to the CBS Community Garden. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Stephen. Pretty, you're out of the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Great today. How are you doing? Oh, doing great, thanks. Uh, it being November 1st, uh, that's uh, the date every year here at the CBS Community Garden, we have our annual pumpkin stroll. So uh, just wanted to get a message out to residents of CBS uh, on two points. One is about collecting pumpkins for the walk. So we have six locations today uh, until about 2 o'clock where folks who have uh, their carved pumpkins, even on carved pumpkins, they can drop those off to have them displayed at the walk tonight. So those locations are the Richard Parsons Field in Seal Cove. We've got a drop-off at the former Rona Building here in Calagruz, uh, CBS Town Hall. Uh, there's a collection spot there. Two of our great community partners, CBS Rentals, they have a, a location set up there where you can drop your pumpkin or good to grow in Topsail. Uh, and in addition to that, those are open until about 2 o'clock, but we will take pumpkins up until around 5 p.m. tonight at the site of the walk. So that walk is taking place at our Gateway Garden uh, location, which if you park at the new CBS Arena, uh, there's a a drop location there, and the walk will start there. Uh, Walk starting tonight around 5.30 for half an hour of of sensory-friendly time, and then uh, up until 8 o'clock, we'll take all the pumpkins that come in, uh, those that are carved. uh, We'll have candles to relight them makes for a really lovely community uh, event. We, we get hundreds of people out to, to walk through the pumpkins, see all the carving talent that's uh, here in town, and uh, just a great way to end off the, uh, the Halloween season. So are some of the carved pumpkins specifically for this walk? So, yeah, uh, we, the pumpkin stroll for us is really 
twofold. It's it's a community event, but we use those pumpkins as one of our primary sources of compost for mm-hmm. our garden activities through the year. So we have four locations actually in CBS now. Uh, the main location folks would know by the arena, but we have one at the Manuals River. We've got our first community garden, uh, neighborhood garden that opened this year. Uh, so we, we take the pumpkins there, lay them in the beds, turn them to compost. Next year, they become the crops that we use for both personal gardening, community uh, food sharing, uh, and as educational uh pieces that we do with brownies and, and, and guides and, and the like uh, at the garden. So all about a community event for tonight, but really, you know, our, our ultimate goal in some ways is to get as many pumpkins as we can to uh, have as much compost as we can for the next growing season. Not every community garden is created equal. So exactly how does it work for the residents of CBS? Do you become a member? Do you owe a certain number of hours tending fields or harvest or cleaning or something to be to avail of the product? What happens? Yeah, so we've got four locations. The, uh, the Gateway Garden, where tonight's event will take place, is really as much like a community learning and event center. So we've got a number of beds there that are leased uh, by individual families uh, where they plant their own crops, they pay a fee, they tend to their beds. And then we have another group of uh, beds that are communal. So members of the community who volunteer spend time, they plant the crops, tend to them. They could go to any number of things. We've, uh, we've harvested crops and put them in some of the local pantries. We've shared them with, uh, as I said, the brownies and, and the beavers and groups that, that come forward. Uh, but in addition to that, we're trying to grow that space. So we've built a stage for community events and as an outdoor classroom, a fairy garden. We've got a fruit orchard in development, lots of those pieces. At our other locations, Manuel's River, that's uh, entirely uh, community-led and, and communal. And then our neighborhood locations is really about the folks in a neighborhood coming together uh, sharing crops uh, in beds, and, and we support that with, with infrastructure and a little bit of funding. So it really runs the gamut uh, in CBS. Sounds terrific. Give us the drop-off locations one more time, because I know there's people looking at their stoop with the pumpkin and maybe looking for a place for, <laughs> for to find a new home. Don't want, don't want that to happen for sure. So primary location open until 5 is at the Gateway Garden uh, at the lower entrance to the CBS Arena, but you can also, until 2 o'clock, drop off at the Richard Parsons Field in Seal Cove, at the former Rona building, uh, Town Hall, uh, CBS Rentals, which is uh, a long pond, and then at the other end of town, good to grow. The one other thing I'd mention, Patty, no charge to attend tonight uh, at all. The one thing we are doing this year, though, we do have the first CBS scouts on site. They're going to collect monetary donations, totally voluntary, uh, but uh, we're going to collect some funds for the CBS Paradise Food Bank because there's just so much need in the community right now, and we, we thought it would be an opportunity to uh, to try that out. But please don't let that be a barrier to anybody who who even can't. Uh, you know, some folks can't even afford to make those kind of donations. We want everybody to come out and enjoy the night. So that's the priority right there. Great job. Sounds like a fun event tonight, and good job throughout the year at the CBS Community Gardens. Good to have you on, Stephen. Thanks, Patty. Take care, everybody. You too, man. Bye-bye. Okay, bye bye. Yeah, and just a very quick mention before we get to the news. Some guy got really quite cross with me <laughs> one day last week because I was talking about uh, backyard farming, homesteading, community gardens, and so be it. People can be mad if they like. It doesn't have to be a whole lot of regulatory red tape and bureaucratic nonsense for people to collaborate as municipal leaders in the regional sense and or involvement with municipalities in Newfoundland and Labrador and or the department. Because the more we do to produce more of what we consume, the better off we'll all be. So I would think it's probably an excellent idea to look at best practices, whether it be the community garden set up in CBS or wherever else, and or Dan Rubin and his group, and or Food First NL or whoever. The more we do to grow 
a variety of things. So I'm going to talk about a fruit orchard. So we're not just talking root vegetables. So between greenhouses and community gardens and backyard farming and homesteading, and municipalities need to be realistic when they put uh, the restrictions in place. It can't be so extraordinary that it's potatoes and carrots and lettuce and cabbage, and that's it. You know, or radishes or whatever else people are talking about for roots. So more of that work sounds like an excellent idea to me. Where you see a downside and or you support the idea, you can let us know on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Via email, openline at VOCM.com. Or my choice, my preference, if you pick up the phone and join us live on the air. We're taking a break for the news, and then we're coming back. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number five. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Great. You? Good, good. Uh, just a quick thing. I hear a lot of people talking about batteries for EVs, and uh, Tesla's building gigafactories, which are basically modular factories that right now they're focused on building the batteries, and they're massive, massive buildings, but they're designed so that once the circular, because the world now is trying to focus, hopefully, is focusing on the circular economy where you make something, you design it so that it can be can be renewed. So the concept is that as there's enough batteries out there, then they'll build a module on for taking the, the batteries that have lost some of their life or they're no longer to the point that they're practical, go back into the factory, and then you create that circular thing where, where there's no loss of all those rare earth metals, and, and that significantly reduces the carbon footprint of the batteries because now you don't have to remine them. You just take them apart and put them back together. They're being repurposed uh, right now as well. I mean, people think that an EV battery, once it outlives its uh, usefulness for powering an electric vehicle, that all of a sudden it just ends up in the dump, but it really doesn't. There's widespread use of uh, EV batteries in the solar business, for instance. They still have enough storage capacity to help with the generation of power via solar panels. And there's other uh, repurposing tools out there for EV batteries as well. So, you know, it's one of the conversations that gets derailed pretty quickly because you know, the move towards electric vehicles, regardless if people are in favor of it or not, I mean, the, the major manufacturers of the world are moving in that direction. Some countries are going to just grandfather in internal combustion engines and no longer sell them after like 20, uh, 2035 in France, for instance. So, you know, there's nothing perfect in this world. There is nothing perfectly green in this world. What we're talking about is from the engineering and the manufacturing and the life cycle of a vehicle and doing away with it at its end of life, where are the emission controls? What looks better in, in the big picture? And that doesn't indeed include the mining of the rare earth minerals. It does indeed include what happens to a battery after its life. But we don't apply that same thought to internal combustion engines for some reason. I don't know why, but the conversation is going to keep going. Some people will be really bullish on an electric vehicle or a hybrid. Some won't be. But let's try to see if we can include all of the big picture for the ICE versus the EV from beginning to end and what sounds the best, what looks the best. For me, it's an attractive option simply for cost of operation. You know, regardless of environmental footprint, which many people would make a decision based on that and maybe that alone, the cost of operating it compared to my vehicle is clear. So the next one I buy is very likely going to be a hybrid. So anyway, continue Good on. For you. Good for you. So I want to pick up on Dr. Mackey call yesterday. Great, great call. And, uh, you know, some of the things I want to highlight is he said the weight comes down on us to force the change. Once again, something I've been trying to hammer in is that you can't expect the politicians to save us when all they hear from us is we want more, we want more. Don't do anything difficult. You know, don't don't turn anything upside down. So, so you know, again, emphasize that. He said that money wasn't the answer. I mean, it, it leads to recruitment often, but not necessarily retention. 
And then he got into the thing which I believe is really the missed opportunity. And when I heard Premier Fury announce hospital yesterday, and to my mind, I was thinking along the lines of what Dr. Mackey was saying, which is we need to in- introduce technology into the into our system and invest heavily in it. Why do we have a New Zealand company, which is what he indicated is where all our health records are being stored in a New Zealand company with these long delays? You know, why do you not, before you go to the doctor, why do you not interact with, with an online thing where it asks you questions and where before, you know, the questions that the doctor is going to ask you first. And then that generates something on his screen before you even come in, maybe even a list of possible other questions that could be asked or, or the most up-to-date um, technology or most up-to-date treatment modalities from right across the country because no doctor is right up-to-date. I mean, they're busy. I mean, they, a lot of them have been practicing for a long time. Technology changes and modalities change. And, you know, the, the opportunity to introduce technology into our healthcare and to streamline it and to make it more efficient. And, and you know, we, we hear about people who drive hours and hours and hours to get to an appointment. Then they get there and for some reason there's no bed or there's nothing. There's something like that. And that's all stuff that it's because we have so many humans and so many different people handling the process, and you know, it's, it would be impossible for any one or any group of individuals to manage this unless they were just working at it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Where is the, you know, we use artificial intelligence as kind of like a boogeyman, but but where is the ability to have all this managed and and then have it so that it's protected? Because one of the downsides is. You know, he and Dickey talked about Google. Well, Google did go down a little while ago, and obviously that'd be a very bad thing. But you can have it so that you're using a cloud-based product, but then you have a backup maybe in in the new hospital that they might build at St. Clair's. But so that you know, you can go if necessary very quickly transition to an offline option. Well, it would be online within the province, but not necessarily relying on an international person group. I wasn't even aware that was a thing until Dr. Mackey brought it to my attention yesterday morning. I mean, you know, even things like digital medical records, some of those recommendations are as old as the Cameron Inquiry, you know, into the hormone receptor debacle that we saw unfold here in the province. So, yeah, I mean, Mackie makes all the relevant points, well, certainly from his perspective, and he'd know more about it. Of course, he's a family doctor, and he's actually practicing in that discipline. I have tried to, you know, like the, the BC moves that they've made, whether it be for keeping their graduating medical students to practice in their province, whether it be the concern we hear wide and far from the NLMA and its members about the fee-for-service model and moving into something that's better for doctors and makes more sense for doctors. You know, we've got a competitive landscape that if we're not going to be part of it, and I know the government has tried to put some incentive packages in place, and they said yesterday there's a couple more coming. I don't know what they're going to look like. But when provinces like BC, with what they have to offer, insofar as amenities and their surroundings and the cities and the mountains and everything else that BC has is a glorious province. We've got to really be creative here with how we try to fill these voids. And I get in a lot of trouble in some communities by saying some of the, the issue with diversions and or ERs closing or what have you is when we have a competitive world, how attractive can we make certain small communities? And we, of course, can. There's a great life to be had if you want to live on Fogo Island. There's a wonderful life to be had if you'd like to live up in uh, Labrador. But we've got to make sure that the doctors see it that way, not just us, because that's the that's the rub here. How attractive can we make parts of the province that are very difficult to staff with healthcare professionals? It's not as simple as some people make it out to be, in my personal opinion. And I know that's not going to be well received in some communities, but that's the reality. I think that's what doctors tell me and graduates that I've spoken to directly at Memorial University. They're like, I don't really want to do that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and what do we do to make it more attractive? I really don't know the answer. Well, I think, first of all, bearing in mind that B.C. has climate change. They're like the poster child for climate change. So I'm not necessarily sure that B.C. is as attractive as, 
as most people would think about it, think it is. Secondly, Paul Dim was on last week with uh, Tim, and he was saying we need to create a spreadsheet of what all the provinces are doing. Then we need to do better, and and that's just a race to the bottom. You know, Dr. Mackey said yesterday we've been trying to do the same thing for 30 years, throw money at it, and it's going to solve the problems. You know what? I just want to emphasize what he said, which is he said we have to get technology in there to augment, to to uh, to give to supercharge the existing health professionals we have and make that as efficient as possible and not be okay with, you know, scope of practice is one small example, but that just goes on and on and on. And, and you know, if we as Newfoundlanders, especially the people who, uh, you know, you got companies like Verifin and, and you know, this gen- Dr. Mackey said, yes, he has a company. And, and the thing is, I engaged with the health court and I said, well, exactly what Dr. Mackey said. I said to Sister Elizabeth, I said, you know, why are we not introducing technology in the form of AI? And that never made it in any reports, and it doesn't seem to be any part of the analysis. You know, and the other thing, you know, which which I was kind of hoping Dr. Mackey was going to go there, and and it's not about blaming the patients, but where is the call from our leaders for people to be healthier? I'm running into so many Newfoundlanders who are doing that. I know you've mentioned it, who are who realize like you have to manage your own health. The healthcare is not going to be able to save you, and you know we have to realize that it's only going to get worse unless we revolutionize how we deliver our model, like how we deliver healthcare. It's got to be us looking after our health and then using professionals, basically subcontracting out to professionals to help us be healthy. Then at some point, obviously, when we're at the end of our life, that deal deal changes. But until we realize that our, our, our sedentary lifestyles, the fact that bacon and bologna and all these things are, are not just treats that we have every once in a while, that they're like a, they're, they're a daily part of our life. Uh, until we can have these difficult conversations and our leadership can say, listen, guys, we can't save you. Like it's getting worse here. Your health is getting worse. And you have to take that into your own hands. I mean, I, you know, it's just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how people, I don't know how people don't realize it. I mean, the healthcare crisis is a healthcare crisis has manifested a certain amount, of course, by the fact that we're an aging population, but there's lots of very healthy people who are older. You run into them. They eat healthy. They're very active. They're out skating, they're skiing, they're doing all that stuff. But it's also because we as a population in Canada, have gotten very unhealthy in North America, very unhealthy. But in Newfoundland, more unhealthy again. And and we have to own that. Like, we have to look ourselves in the face. And it's not about socioeconomic, although we want to talk about it being. It's not just that. There's lots of people who have lots of money and lots of education who are unhealthy. I mean, that's just a cop-out to say, oh, just give guaranteed basic income to people, and that's going to fix the problem. Well, in some cases, that just means they're going to buy more unhealthy food. Appreciate the time, Tom. Off to the break we go. Stay safe. You Bye. too. Bye. Uh, yeah, I want to be Florence Barron when I grow up. Eight years old, ran a half marathon, then ran the Telly 10, and then ran the Cape to Cabot. Wow. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Center. He's also the interim NDP leader in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Jim Din. And good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. And how are you doing, sir? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Not too bad. Can't complain. <laughs> good. So far. <laughs> and then you're just about to start, so go ahead. <laughs> Yes, I just want to have a chat about the uh, uh, the new the announcement yesterday of the new hospital, and it's in my it, that was in my district. That's in my district, and you know, heard the announcement on, uh, and I listened to it. On the one hand, I can say, yeah, a new building is uh, always appreciated, and having the new uh, the the new uh, uh, what um, uh, equipment and so on and so forth. But I, the question I've got to ask that that's been echoing in my head for uh, since then is why, where did this come from? Why is this all of a sudden a priority? 
And I asked that question, uh, Patty, in terms of the Health Accord, Newfoundland and Labrador, where, from what I get, uh, see, nowhere in any of the he the hearings um, or in the report was the um, was the uh, a new hospital for the center of the city identified as a priority. Uh, there's plenty of mention of, from what I gather in hearings, from uh, of the new need for a new mental health facility and maybe a new penitentiary, but this hospital didn't, uh, that was never a priority. What were the priorities where the big money has to be spent was on uh, certainly on getting the ambulance system up and running, uh, having a robust ambulance system and the information uh, the system uh, up and running, a virtual care system to get access to, for so people from uh, in, in remote areas have access to care, care. community teams um, uh, that uh, the community uh, team clinics that we that uh, that that are a big part of the plan, centers of excellence for uh, for uh, seniors. Uh, in central and western Newfoundland, uh, and the care for children uh, and care for children at risk, those are the first priori the priorities. Big money, and uh, they were the first priority that we need to get our our, our, our health care system, I guess, um, back up, running, and and hopefully reducing the uh, achieving better outcomes. The second priority that was in that report was looking at a guaranteed basic income, and really. If we're going to do anything, before we start building a, a hospital, the bricks and mortars, let's get, get, let's get addressed the, the, uh, the very serious de de uh, deficits and deficiencies in the system right now and in our society, and then let's talk about building the hospital. But otherwise, we're putting the cart before the horse in many ways. Uh, you know, uh, and that's just my, like, you know, buildings in the end, infrastructure doesn't, is not going to solve the issue of poverty. It's not going to solve the issue. Uh, it's not going to have anyone. That, it's not going to take my pulse. It's not going to care for me in the hospital. It's going to be about. Uh, it's going to be a human resources piece as well. For the purpose of conversation only, if the population of the region has grown by 25 percent since 2000, and we have a shortage of beds and a 100-year-old facility, when would be the time to address it? Because even if it's just adding more beds to the system, I know that these human beings to monitor and manage the beds, all the disciplines inside of healthcare. But when would be the time to replace a building that is it's absolutely showing its age? Anyone who's ever been to St. Clair's knows, knows it to be true. It's still a functional operational facility. But when would be the time? Like, what would have to be satisfied or achieved for you to be in support for this project? A good question. And it's not that I'm uh, not in support of a, a new infrastructure. It comes down to the priorities. But whenever we talk about beds, and every time I've listened to bed closures, it's not about that there wasn't a, a physical bed there. It has to do with having the staff to man that. Bed. So each bed has a patient. Uh, you know that's what it comes down to. Uh, and and you've got to have personnel there to uh, to uh, basically to care for their needs. And I mean, at the time I, when I've heard war hall wards closed, it wasn't that there wasn't a bed. It had to do with uh, the bed is sort of like a, a, a I guess a, a, a bit of metonymy there. It, it's associated with patient. You had to have people. You never had pe people. So we have uh, if, if, to answer your question. When would I uh, when would I support this? I look at the priorities. What comes first in terms of uh, we've got a, a very clear, a very clear uh, a set of priorities from the health court in Newfoundland about ad ad addressing the issue. That's our plan for it. Let's follow that. Secondly, 
if, uh, if nothing else, let's make sure that we've got the uh, the, uh, the human resources plan that that was called for over a year ago. We haven't seen uh, whether that whether that uh, that comprehensive strategy or the RFP has been called. We haven't seen anything to address that. So, Patty, at some point, it's it, it's we've got to have people. It's like saying, well, we've got empty, we got mics at the at VOCM. That's good, but you still need people behind those microphones to do the job. And that's where I'm going with it. So, again, I go back to this. The health accord, uh, and I'm going to go back, because all last year, whenever we would ask questions about health, the, que the uh, answer was given, well, we have to deal with, we have to wait for the health accord to come out, the recommendations. Well, now the health accord is out there and has laid out a very clear plan as to what we need to address. It's not saying don't build the hospital. It's also not, it was never identified in any of the discussions as a priority. Should we maintain it? Should we keep it up? Yes, the uh, health, uh, the uh, St. Clair's is, a, is a, an older facility, but the uh, health sciences is newer and it's still struggling. It still has the same issues. I'll also go to this. I taught at Holy Heart, and much o an older facility uh, than many other schools that, that are out there. But I can tell you, it had it had the staff, it had the programming, it had uh, the ability to were teacher, you know, to, to uh, resources to help the, to help students. That's where I'm going with this. In the end, you've got to uh, before we start talking about a new building. Let's look at how do we uh, deal with the, uh, the human resource piece. Where is the comprehensive plan to deal with the, uh, the so that uh, to, pre to prevent uh, more emergency rooms from shutting down? What is it we're going to do as well if we put this health court plan in? Maybe we won't need uh, uh, as many uh, the, uh, an actual physical building. Maybe we need to do uh, because we'll have a healthier population to begin with. But that was the whole purpose of this health accord plan. And I'm sorry for going on about this, but it, it to me it's just uh, it's just missing the boat. And I can't help but think <laughs> if if this this announcement today out of the, uh, yesterday out of the blue was simply a, a distraction from uh, the events of week the week before. Uh, it, you know. I'm just trying to see where this fits in with the overall health accord plan, health accord NL. When they really never made that recommendation, uh, never it was never brought up in discussions, and mm -hmm. now all of a sudden it's a priority. Uh, like I said off the top of the program, I mean this is a pretty common practice in the world of politics, changing the channel, changing the narrative, deflection, or whatever the case may be. But we can certainly consider all these issues at the same time. Yeah. The Risley fishing trip did happen. Yeah. The issues uh, throughout the entirety of the healthcare delivery system are what they are. We can talk about them all at the same time. It kind of came out of nowhere for me, like most, I would suggest. So when an announcement with a piece of infrastructure, as important as it is, I suppose, and as costly as it would be, to know, no inkling as to when, where, mm -hmm. how, that seems to be a relatively empty announcement. People might be supportive of healthcare infrastructure at this time, replacing St. Clair's at this time, maybe doing away with the eyesore, that is the grace. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about everything else that's uh, ongoing. Uh, one concern, regardless of when or where, is how. The whole concept of a, a private-public partnership here, the old P3, yes. My God, we have to know an awful lot more about that. We did get some understanding about how it was going to look with the new long-term care facilities in Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor. doesn't mean it's a good idea, but it means we had some idea how it was going to work and whether or not people could be unionized working in, inside and all those types of things. But a 30-year project, I don't know what the price tag is. I'll take a wild shot at, what, $700 million or something. So how does that work? 
What does it mean in year five? What does it mean in year 30? What does it mean for uh, use of public funds and or the government's interest rate available to them uh, for the private contractor? What does a profit margin look like? We don't know any of these things, which is as big a conversation as to when it's going to get built or why. And, Patty, uh, you hit the nail on the head with the with P3s. They're like you, When you look at even the fact that government can get better interest rates than any private firm, that uh, and, and any P3 that I've uh, looked at or that we've done our uh, research on, it ends up costing the public more. There's a profit motive to it. So, uh, But in the end, you know, those are like – and I guess to your point, too, the question that came – this came out of the blue yet, uh, yesterday without – without any real details and that's that's problematic for me it's also problematic again is that we have a blueprint uh, that's there for us to follow to try to sort of get our healthcare system back on on track let's have the courage of our convictions and the faith in this uh, this ex- by the way and there is the other thing extensive consultation i'll say this about the uh, about the health court extensive consultation as opposed to what we're what's being proposed is an accelerated consultation process so uh, to me i look at the uh, the suddenness of of this where this came from the fact that it wasn't part of the the uh, health court plan or the uh, consultation uh, the unanswered questions around P3s, the unanswered questions as to how we're going to address the, uh, uh, the, the human resource piece. I will tell you right now uh, there, that, that while I would love to see a new, uh, like a, a new hospital in my district, I can tell you that much, I will tell you the alarm bells are going off. And yes, you walk into St. Clair's. By the way, if I go to any hospital, it tends to be, the, it tends to be St. Clair's. Yes, it's worn. It does have a community uh, feel to it, and, uh, and, 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 and uh, that. But at the same time, in the end, I want to know when I'm in that emergency ward or in the hospital, are the people there who are looking after me? Do they are they able to achieve that work-life balance? Are they qualified in the end? And that's what it comes down to. And uh, and uh, and in the end, whether I'm in the J- in the uh, uh, health sciences or the or the St. Clair's, I'm not worried about the the paint or the uh, or the look of it. I like do they have what they need to do there? They do their jobs, and are they qualified? But in the end, Patty, you raised some very good points about the uncertainty, the questions, a lot of unanswered questions around P3s of how we're going to fund this, how much it's going to cost. My question then becomes, if this is a priority, what happens to the priorities that are identified uh, in the health court? Because they are big money items uh, that, that have been very clear. Like, uh, and and my, my fear is that which one gets the the uh, which one is going to get the funding because we've been told over and over where are we getting the money anytime i bring up something where are we getting the money now we seem to have money for everything uh when it's a pet project but the real fundamental structural systemic change for the uh, healthcare system is going to require significant investment mm-hmm. i hope to god that that's still a priority, that that money is going to there. It's not as impressive, I guess, as a bricks and mortar. You look, here's a brand new shiny building, but I think it's going to be a more lasting and more positive monument to to our healthcare system. Uh, Fair enough. I I will say this, though. Not all public-private partnerships are the same. They don't all end up with devastating consequences, like some of the highway P3s in Ontario went absolutely upside down. 
uh, but the Confederation Bridge, not so much. Long-term care facility versus a hospital versus a prison versus the science building at Mont, they're all a little bit different, which is why we need real contextual questions and answers to understand how they're different and how it's going to work and what the 30-year vision looks like. Where am I in 30 years? How much will it cost on the P3 versus if government goes alone? So, anyway, uh, Jim, appreciate the time this morning. No problem. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Jim Din, he's the MHA, NDP MHA for St. John's Centre and, of course, the interim leader of the party. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to look south of the border. Uh-oh. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Brian, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? Look. Very good. Before we start, I'd like to thank Mr. Jim Din for coming on your show. I've told you time and time again, I'm a political atheist. I have no use for politicians, and I'm glad we have a health care system. Because if, uh, and you have to have a member from each party on your show from time to time. If one of them had to say anything good about the other, they'd choke. And God bless your health care system. To save them, uh, Mr. Mr. Din, in a good way. Well, well, what they do for me is they prove me right. He comes on. Uh, they're going to build a new hospital taking part of the, taking place at St. Clair's. Oh, he's going to find all sorts of things wrong with it. Well, you know, it's only proving me right. Uh, who, who gives a damn what he get, what he thinks anyway? I I got no use for politics politicians. If it looks good on them, then it must be good. Now, well, I, the, I, the reality is we're always going to have politics and politicians in our current structure of government. You know, whether people think one individual, one party are good or bad, that's up to them. You know, the issue for me is not so much about the politics of it because, you know, someone just sent me a Boris Johnson quote where, you know, just throw a dead cat on the table if you're losing an argument. So the, yeah. the, the whole deflection concept, which I don't fall for because I can think about a bunch of things at the exact same time. The, the issue for me is just a bit more in the understanding of, you know, the where, the when, the how, the why, as yeah. opposed to simply announce that we're doing something. It's fine to say I'm going to do something, I'm going to build this, but with no other details to consider, we now are making decisions the day after of whether it's good or bad without even really knowing anything. So that's the problem for me, for most of these things. Policy has to be nuanced. Policy has to be contextualized. And in this case, it's nothing. It's simply someone saying I'm building a building. Well, anyway, what I want to talk about this morning is serious. Tanya, I want to ask, ask you a question. Be very honest with me. Right. You can't insult me. What? I remember when Jack Layton was so sick, okay, and he had cancer. And I remember him having to come on television and looking so, so sick, the poor man. And he had to resign as leader of the NDP party. Uh, he had to phone the prime minister and made that known. Now, Paddy, how about if I had come on your show and made jokes about Jack Layton being sick? How would you react to me? Well, I'd probably just hang up on you. And you would, and it would be right. Now, down in the United States on Friday, we had some lunatic break into the house of Nancy Pelosi and uh, take a hammer. And uh, once, once he found someone in the house, which was her husband, he hit him over the head and caused grave damage. The man's 82. What reaction do we get? We got the Republicans out there uh, dreaming up stories 
Uh, first of all, now I got this. Uh, I got this from other news sources. Uh, the Republicans started saying, "Oh no, it was a lovers' quarrel. These were two gay men who were having a quarrel, and that's what happened." And of course, that spread like wildfire, as the old saying goes: "A lie makes its way around the world before the truth gets out of bed." And now, all of a sudden, that's, that's gospel to many uh, supporters of that particular party, and even. Look, I mean, I had to stop following the story over the weekend, Brian. I, was, I just found it to be disgraceful. Regardless of what happened, who did it, why, the fact of the matter is there's an 82-year-old man in the ICU. So right. for any opportunity to mock it, for regardless of your political leanings, just seems to be grotesque to me. You know, before we actually get the investigators, law enforcement, to interview this person, to see them through some of the investigatory process, uh, to see what happens in a court of law, we've got the terminations made, and the story has now been told and case closed before the story is even beginning. It's just completely, it's absolute madness. Some of the things, like someone sent me a picture that they saw posted on Facebook, and it was a bunch of grown men. And their Halloween costume last night was uh, gay pride flags carrying a hammer. Really? Yeah. I mean, is that what politics has become to that disgraceful, you know, like they say, there is no bottom. Can we just please think about things in realistic terms? I don't care who you support, who you're going to vote for. No. If you think it's funny that the man has been beaten to the point where he had to have uh, brain surgery and he remains in the ICU at the age of 82, then there's something distinctly wrong with you. And you know, Patty, this is a parody that, oh, ever since I was a little fellow, this is a party who based themselves upon Christian principles. I remember, I remember uh, the Reverend Jerry Falwell, a big, big, uh, he started the moral majority, big conservative. And they run around the country saying they're pro-life and they're pro-Christian. And you know, Patty, I'm going to have to be honest with you. Um, What's Christian about making fun of all man who's been just about murdered? What's Christian about turning a group of people against the LGBT community? Uh, you know, how these people are running around letting on their Christians, and it's anything but Christian. And I think what the thing is that people are talking about politics down in America or democracy. It's dead. It's dead. Uh, last, I just want to mention that over the weekend, you probably know, Jerry Lee Lewis died at the age of 87. Few people realize that Jerry Lee Lewis was closely related to Jimmy Swagger. Did you know that? I did know that. And, of course, his contribution to music is one thing. The fact that he married a child is another. That's right. He was 22 when he got married to his cousin, I think, was 13. And here was Jimmy Swagger and on his Sunday morning television, uh, you know, putting everybody down, telling us all we were going to go to hell in the handbasket, you know. Anyway, so that's, I want to, before I leave you this morning, Patty, I'd like to put a shout out there, out there for your producer, David Williams. My sister died a couple of weeks ago, and that was her on me. And I had, to, I had to get her OAS and CPP canceled, and it was David who found that there was such a, uh, an office at St. John's, and I was able to do that with very little problem. So I'd like to thank David this morning. He made a difficult situation a little less difficult. And uh, I think that's what I look, look for from our politicians. So thanks once again, uh, and have a nice day. I appreciate the call, Brian, and our condolences on your loss. Thank you.
take good care bye-bye yeah look again part of the tribalism inside of politics again i don't care who you support but if the outcome is everything is worse for everybody how and why is that sensible in anybody's mind you know the we have always had some violence associated with politics and like even in this country and thankfully we are nowhere near what we see south of the border but there are pockets of it just imagine there was a a disgruntled sausage maker made his way out of the grounds of Rideau Hall and with the intention obviously to hurt someone he had a, a boatload of weapons in his vehicle but we just kind of downplayed it uh you know it's not really that big deal yes it is a big deal so again I don't know how people have become so quick to mock anything out there if it's not completely aligned with their values or their party or their politics. But if you just stand back and think about it, those types of things make it worse for everybody, regardless of who you intend to vote for. Just imagine taking the opportunity, no matter what, to make fun of or to mock the fact that someone got beaten with a hammer and is in the ICU. Where's the funny in that? You know, I prefer my... Uh, comedy to actually be attached with funny. Let's take a break. When we come back, today is a good day to go down the show. All you have to do is pick up the phone and give us a shout. 273-5211 in the metro region. 1-866. Is it 866? I say it every day. 1-866-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Lots of feedback and lots of reaction to the announcement made yesterday by Premier Fury regarding the replacement for Sinclair's. And nobody's wrong in saying that, you know, there's a staffing issue. You can build a 1,000 beds if you don't have the nurses and doctors and staff to have someone in that bed safely to receive care, then it's irrelevant. That's absolutely true. Some of the issues that's hap- happening right this minute at the health care, uh, health sciences center is there absolutely are people in hallways that could indeed be on the floor, but there's a combination of things. Some of it's no staff, but some of it the beds are full, and there is staff. So every day there's a bit of a changing landscape regarding staffing. And the number of patients that would be presenting, say, for instance, in emergency rooms. So it's not the mis- dismissing any of the concerns that people talk about staffing, because I mean, I speak to it all the time here on this program. And it's not me just focusing solely on the public private partnership, but I think that's a big issue here. Because, of course, if you build it and you have the staff, then it ends up being probably a worthwhile project. Is the timing right at this moment in time? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. But the public-private partnership, because we've already entertained it on a couple of different fronts already in this province, do you think that you have enough information in your head, because I don't, to say whether or not I think it's good or bad in full? Because some P3s can work. The, For instance, I've mentioned the Confederation Bridge, linking PEI to the mainland. That does seem to work. There comes an associated toll, but that's where all the differences lie. If you're talking about a long-term care facility under a P3 operation on a 30-year contract, that's different than a bridge. If you're talking about the construction of a hospital with who knows how many beds with a price tag of who knows what, six or $700 million, that's different than, different than highway work in Ontario. So that's where I think some of the details really leave a lot of people shrugging their shoulders. And I get it. I'm like the rest of you. When you hear some of these things, we make very immediate decisions in our own head as to whether or not we think it's good or bad or ill-timed, or stupid, or whatever it is people uh, label it as, and that's fine. And you can bring your labels on the conversation and the points you like to make on that story or anything else to the air this morning. But I got an email. I couldn't really understand the point the person was making, but 
Focusing on the P3 is not turning our back on the human consideration and the staffing shortages and patient safety and the continuity of care or whatever people want to refer to as the human component here. Of course, that's the ultimate component. Also talking about money is realistic because the point that um, I think people attempt to make on the P3 is it may feel good and less onerous and less taxing on the government and consequently me and you, the taxpayer, in the P3. The big problem comes years down the road. So that's the evaluation we need is for someone to paint a very clear picture. Like, talk to me like I'm 10 years old. Give me a roadmap. Let me understand exactly what a P3 means for the construction of a hospital. What does it look like in 10 years if government had to go it alone and put out, uh, put out tenders and again, hire a contracting company and engineers and architects into the design and the construction of a hospital? What does it look like in 30 years at the end of the contract? What would it have cost government over that same roadmap? What would it cost the government in a P3? What sort of money would come out of taxpayers' pockets to uh, be associated with a private contractor in the, the construction and the operations of a hospital? You know, I don't know how and why they're not appropriate questions, because yes, healthcare is about human beings, but whether we like it or not, healthcare is also about money. And if there's a way to save long-term, that's probably advantageous. It might come with some short-term pain, but where do we make our choice based on what kind of pain we're willing and wanting to accept? Is it a bit of short-term, or is it just kick the can down the road, and the pain that may become apparent in 30 years is more than we would have suffered had government done it on, on their own accord? That's all we're trying to figure out here. But when there's a big announcement with some massive price tag and controversy associated with it, if you don't have any understanding as to when it's going to be built, where it's going to be built, how it's going to be built, the contractual relationship with the private sector, what profit means in the operations of a hospital, then we're just kind of spinning our wheels and making big determinations of good or bad or indifferent on something that we really don't really know much about. It's fine to have government announcements, but we're going to do this. Okay, when and how? When no answers are available to those fundamental questions, what exactly are we supposed to understand about the proposal to replace Sinclair's? Anyway, you want to bring any angle to it, or of course, any topic of your choosing, you can do it on this program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, John. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Okay, sir, you. Everybody's still loving you. <laughs> uh, not everybody, but I'll take whatever bit of love I can get, I suppose. What I would have been a kumbaya. Hey, boy. Yeah. All right. Anyway, the reason I wanted to speak to you for about two minutes is that uh, I got hit and uh, run on my mountain bike. Uh, it was my fault. Hit and run about, uh, I'd say, about a month ago now on uh, Pearl Town Road. And uh, what happened is that uh, I got my knees broke up pretty bad. I uh, flew through the air. The, the car hit my back tire. I was on the opposite side of the road. Hit my back tire. My front wheel went in a 90-degree angle. I went up in the air and landed on my two knees. Uh, I went and got x-rays at St. Clair's um, on October 17th. I can't get an appointment to get my x-rays read by my GP. I'm lucky to have a GP, apparently. I can't get in November 17th. So they're recommending that I go through 811. And that system is unbelievable. You've got to go through what they call a navigator. The navigator puts you onto an RN. Then the RN has to put you onto a call center. Then the call center is used by the triage from the RN. The call center then is used to put a nurse practitioner or practical nurse that can read your uh, blood work, but they can't read your x-rays, apparently. I'm saying, oh, my God, man, the amount of work it took. It took me two days just to try to figure it out. So I told them to forget it. I can't wait that long. And I can't wait till November 17th. That's a month since I had my x-rays done since October 17th. Apparently, they can only read my blood work if they'll ever call me back. And it's four levels to get through to 811. 
I told him I would never call 811 again. And they suggested, I don't mean to laugh, they suggested that I go to St. Clair's to the Health Science to emergency. So I got my knapsack packed and my, and my sleeping bag and some lunch packed. And I'm going to join the senior citizens that are in the hallways at the Health Science Center. And I'm going to try to get the doctor, emergency doctor, to read my x-rays. And I'm going to see if I can get a referral to a specialist because I can't wait till November 17th to see my GP. And that's the only avenue I got. And my knees are really bad. My, my kneecaps apparently look like they're dislocated. And this and that, I can hardly walk. Unbelievable. And uh, I did get an x-ray, like I said, on the 17th of October, but they only show bones. But I got more damage done to that. I don't know what's going on with this healthcare system. 811, I don't want to, lack of a better word. Oh, my God, you got to go through four people to get to the end. I just can't get to the end to get my x-rays read. What do you suggest? The floor is yours. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, I don't know. 811 in concept sounds like an appropriate approach, you know, to take for navigating the healthcare system. I think it got a little bit more complicated when they put the mental health crisis line operations in that number, even though a go-to number like 811 is probably a good idea and it's going to be nationwide here sometime in the fall of next year or the year after. But if it's not working seamlessly, and I know there were some problems with it a few months ago, and we would ask the minister responsible at the time, it was John Hagee, about it, people waiting for callbacks or not getting through to anybody or speaking to several people before they get any understanding of where to go next, it's not great. And if, if it doesn't work like it's intended to work, then we've got to fix it. Here's my problem. I'll, I'll just say because you got to go to the news, right? And I really appreciate you taking the call, and, and I hope the listeners, I hope everybody's listening out there. I cannot, I just can't get to the end to get my x-rays read so I can get a refer to a specialist. They're telling me the only one that can give me a refer to a specialist is my GP. I can't get in her till November 17th. I don't think my knees can last. Apparently, my friends have told me I got my knees like my grandmother, and she apparently she didn't have great knees. And I don't want to look like my grandmother's knees. I know I'm using a bit of humor there now, but my knees are really bad. They're broken up. My kneecaps are like up up my chin like they're, they're dislocated and they're really bad I got swelling and puffing and I think I'm doing more damage even even x-ray people said at St. Clair's on the 17th they said man you got really bad knees man you, you're going to have to get an MRI done I can't get a referral I can't do this so now I'm going to head to the health science or St. Clair's because I hope the emergency doctor could read them because apparently the what's it called again? The nurse practitioner. What's the one at the end of the line? The nurse practitioner. Well, I don't know if it's at the end of the line, but uh, licensed practical nurses and nurse practitioners, two right. different disciplines, and they're in the system. Yeah. Okay, I'm talking about the one with the extra two years. Uh, nurse practitioner. Pra- practi- nurse practitioner. Right. Uh, apparently, they can read blood, but they can't read X-rays. Holy God, man! I don't know. Anyway, so I got to head to the health science. I just hope I don't get COVID or the flu in there. It's brutal, man. Well, let me know how you make out. Uh, yeah, my knees are really bad. <coughs> Understood. I don't, I don't I heard know how I'm going to get in there. I usually go on my mountain bike, but I can't because my mountain bike is destroyed and damaged. I was hit and run on Pearl Town Road a month ago. And I checked the two houses over, and there's no cameras, so I can't. I got no recourse, right? So I got a job to get to health science, but one of my friends is going to drive me. Good. But I'm going to be in. I'm going to be in one of them rooms in the back room. But I hope I'm going to get triaged, right? And then if not, I'm, I'm in there for two days. I wouldn't go over unless I knew that someone was going to be able to read my x-ray. I, exactly. I just I wouldn't take the time. But I can't get no one on the phone. An emergency. Okay. They, they won't answer the phone. It's wicked, man. It's wicked. John, I wish you good luck. Good luck with the knees. Let me know how you make out. After the news, I go. Yeah, last thing. Got any suggestions? Do you recommend to go to the health science? Like, i got to do something. No. Do rec- pack a lunch and go in? How can I get them read? Can you read them? Can anyone read them out there? I can't. I'm begging someone to read them. Not, not, not the picture. They got to read the report. It's only three sentences, and no one on eight one one to read it out to me. Specialist. 
I love you, Paddy. Take good care, John. Let me know I, how you make out. I love you, Paddy. And happy, happy post-Halloween, man. Yeah, you too, buddy. All okay, the best. Thanks. All right. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's see here. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi there. Hi. Um, I was just listening to the gentleman previously uh, about reports and stuff. I just want to put it out there that anybody can go to Eastern Health and get any report um, that they of any X-ray tests or anything, and there's a, just a small fee. And the, the place is there on Topsail Road in the Bell Line building. Okay, so what happens? I walk in and I'm looking for an X-ray to be read. What what service can they provide me? Oh, you don't ask them about. You go in and you ask them um, for a copy of the report of the X-ray. And you've got to show your ID, you've got to okay. fill out a form, and then you have to pay for it. And then they'll ask you um, to come back and pick it up, or you can put it in the mail, or they can email it to you. Okay, that's helpful. And so and where exactly did you say I it was? There, I, I go there all the time, and uh, so even before I go see the doctor, and then if there's anything missed, I can ask the question. Helpful piece of info. Appreciate this. Okay, thank you so thank you so much. My first time ever doing this. I'm glad you made time for the show this morning. Thanks a lot. Okay, okay, Patty. Bye bye. Bye bye. Here you go. Well, hopefully that helps John. Uh, let's keep going. Line number two. Say good morning to Courtney Rousel from Task Force NL. Good morning, Courtney. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. I just wanted to call you this morning um, so that I could share with all the listeners out there having another job fair happening next week with um, partnered with the government of Newfoundland Labrador, also the Association for New Canadians and Access Career Services. We're having a job fair for Ukrainians who have arrived and also Afghan refugees here in the province. Okay, so tell us about what, what, how it's going to look because unlike job fairs that would be focusing on current residents or, how do I say this, English-speaking people, how does the job fair work to incorporate all the different moving parts that makes this unique when we're focusing on Ukrainians and Afghan, Afghanistan, uh, folks from Afghanistan? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it works mostly due to the partnership. Um, so um, given that there's a focus on Ukrainians and Afghan refugees, um, we're aware of language uh, capability and capacity, so we'll have translators on site um, to assist both candidates and employees. Um, basically, it'll be set up, you know, the same as as you know your average job fair, where we'll have employers in the room, let's um, you know set up at booths, and then um, candidates will join throughout the day. There's going to be two sessions, uh, one in the morning from nine to twelve, and then one in the afternoon uh, from one to four, um, and it's going to be happening at the Comfort Inn on uh, the road here in St. John's. Um, on Monday, November 7th, and we're asking that employers register um, before the end of day on Thursday, November 3rd. Um, they can register by going to our, our website, taskforcenl.com slash Ukraine. Um, there's a button there that says register here for the job fair. Um, 
we do know that some have been gainfully employed already. I know, for instance, one of the other members of Task Force NL, Sean Power, over at DF Barnes, a friend of mine, they hired five Ukrainian welders, and they're quite pleased with the quality of the work, and they're all five are quite anxious to be as proficient in English as quick as they can. So there's good opportunities, good opportunity to manage to uh, match employers with experienced, trained, ready-to-go employees. So this is going to be helpful. Absolutely, and I can actually give a bit of insight to maybe employers who are listening on the line of what kind of candidates they could expect to meet. Sure. Um, you know, people who are experienced in construction and labor, uh, tourism and hospitality, um, retail and sales, which is particularly important this time of the year, um, engineers, electricians, um, people educated in education, uh, also in the medical sector, and also, um, you know, generic professional services such as accounting, banking, administrative assistance. You know, very, very broad uh, set of skills, very well, well educated and experienced people who are choosing to make Newfoundland their, their home, which is super exciting. Uh, anything else you want to say about that? Um, no, but maybe I'll just recap it all in, in one quick sentence for anybody who may not have been listening from the beginning. Okay, go ahead. Um, so, Task Force NL, in partnership with the Association for New Canadians and Access Services, is hosting a job fair for Ukrainian and uh, Afghan refugees happening on November 7th, two sessions morning, afternoon at the Comfort Inn on Airport Road. And we're asking employers to register on our website at www.taskforcenl.com slash Ukraine. And we look forward to hearing, uh, hearing from you and, and hopefully seeing a lot of employers at this event. Excellent. And thanks for telling us about it. Once I saw your name, it just came to me. I owe you a phone number. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. You can get back, whenever you can get back to me, that'd be great. Well, if you want to take it down right now, I know what it is. Yeah, I totally can. Okay, so I have a, a request uh, list as long as my arms. Some fall through the cracks, and I really apologize. If I've told someone I'll get back to you about something and I haven't, just come back at me because I try to keep up with it, but uh, like I say, there's a lot on my plate. Okay, Shari is her name, S-H-A-R-I, Shari Ritter, yeah. and her number is area code 647-647-261-261. Perfect. And that's just so people know what we're talking about. Shari Ritter is the lady that was formerly uh, one of the directors of the Home Share Program at Memorial University, and I think they had a relationship with the college as well. It went by the wayside for lack of funding. Courtney sent me a note looking for contact information or to fill in some of the blanks, so that's what we're talking about. Because Shari told me in no uncertain terms to give out the number to whoever wants it. If they want to talk about Home Share, how it worked, maybe to be part of bringing it back into the fold here to match up students, in particular grad students, with a senior who would love to have someone living in the home, helping out with some chores, you know, for a cut rate in the rent, for adding, you know, uh, shoveling the driveway or whatever other tasks would be put out there. So I apologize for not getting back to you fast enough, but there it is. Yeah, no worries. Uh, something I'm going to explore in, in my spare time outside of, outside of Task Force and maybe see how Task Force and I could uh, play a part in something like that. It sounds like a great win-win-win situation. Uh, thanks for making time and telling us about the job fair, Courtney. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, and I do apologize. I know there's probably some requests for info that I might not have gotten back to you as soon as you would like. If you just remind me, I won't take offense to any of it. You know, another email or direct message or whatever the case may be, because we try to keep up with it as best we can, but sometimes I blow it. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Tina. You're on the air. Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. How about you? 
Good, good. I'm, I'm wearing a little bit of a different hat today. You know, normally I'm calling to talk about mental health, but today I'm calling about an organization that's very near and dear to my heart. It's an organization that I first started volunteering with when we first moved here. Uh, and um, I started volunteering with Turnings in 2001. Um, and I was a, I sat on a circle, and they call them COSA, Circles of Support and Accountability. And what Turnings does is it's um, an organization that helps ex-offenders reintegrate back into society. These circles of support and accountability um, keep the, uh, we support the the core member who is the ex-offender, but we also keep them accountable. And I've been with them since 2001, and I'm now I'm on the board of directors. But lately, there's there's been some trouble in the old bank account, and I'm telling you, I'm not very happy about it. These guys, Dan McGettigan, Ron Fitzpatrick, and Kevin Foley, have been working here in this province since 1994. The... Uh, amount of people that they have kept out of jail they have kept from reoffending is amazing it's amazing and and uh, I'm disappointed that um, government doesn't dive a little deeper into this area because it is absolutely uh, we know reoffending often results in the victimization of another individual group or the community as a whole and I had to you know, the blurb on the news just before at, at 11 o'clock talked about how communities were concerned that, how to be safer from crime. Well, you know what? There's an organization in this in this province that's working hard to keep communities safer. And it's really important. And the reason I'm calling is because they went to pay bills last month and there was absolutely no money in the account. Now, they are uh, funded by um, part of the Justice uh, Department, um, Finance and Justice, um, the Health and Community Services, and there was nothing, nothing was in the account. So uh, a check bounced. Yeah, I, you know, they work out of a, a little office in the hub a building, and they have been there. They've been doing this for years, and I just... I'm just so upset. I, ha- I had to call. It's 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 really you know we're talking about public safety and an extremely cost-effective way to keep the public safe, and yet there's no money. So no money because it mysteriously went missing, or the the funding that was promised wasn't delivered. Like what what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Apparently that's the that's what it is. The funding that was promised wasn't uh, delivered um health and community services sent money to the account and um after being you know after all of this happened and they got in touch with them um justice has hopefully uh will be sending um their promised amount and this is after numerous emails and phone calls uh the account was was empty like and this is, you know, the only reason they've been able to keep afloat is because of the um, very generous support of the Mercy and Presentation Sisters. 
they, they contribute in, in, in so many ways that help that organization, you know, but, and, and it's all run on volunteers. I mean, and you know, there's, it's not a lot of money that they're asking for, but it's like, it's like, you know, pulling teeth. And I don't understand why they don't, why they don't take a look at this deeper to see just exactly how cost effective it is. And the, and the, Reoffenders end up. I mean, you can count on less than two hands the amount of people sitting that has sat on a circle with turnings who has reoffended and gone back to jail. They keep them out of jail. I'm familiar with turnings. Uh, I know Kevin and Danny McGettigan's a buddy of mine, so yeah. I know how committed they have been. I know how effective the approach is. Uh, between these uh, circles uh, of support and accountability, reformative, or pardon me. Uh, yeah, that's right. What am I trying to say here? Uh, reformative justice? Is that the word? Is that the phrase? Um, restorative justice. Restorative yeah. justice. Yeah. These yeah. things work. I mean, you know, when we oh, talk yes. about bang for buck and cost effectiveness, if anyone cares to do the research, including the ministers responsible of finance and justice, the research is abundantly clear. It's cost effective. It's not another burden on government with human resources and all the packages that go with it. These things mm. work. And, I mean, the commitment that the three gentlemen that you brought forward, and obviously yourself, Tina, the, the one surefire way to be safer is to reduce crime. And one mm-hmm. surefire way to reduce crime is to have people like uh, the folks at Turnings, like at the John Howard Society, help with the reintegration, get people back into society, back into the community, without the want and the will to knock around the same crowd, to commit the same crimes, or worse. So recidivism is a massive part of criminal justice. We don't talk about it a lot. We don't talk about trying to help people with their mental health or addictions while we have them incarcerated. We just right. let, them to, let them do their time. They get out, and many of them go back in. I don't know what the recidivism rate here is in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, but if it's going to get worse because organizations like Turnings go by the wayside, it's all to our collective detriment. So it's not a big number to uh, fund these things. It's much like what I was just talking about with uh, the home share program. It was cost effective. It killed a bunch of birds with the same swing of the stone. Same thing with Turnings. So I'll see what kind of information we can get from the province, so in particular the departments of finance and justice, as to what's going on. And if they're not going to fund it, what's their solution? Exactly, exactly. Because it, I, I just, I just don't understand it. It does not make any sense whatsoever, you know. And 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 you're right. These boys have, um, it, you know, their dedication and their passion is is absolutely amazing and outstanding. And I know they're just they're they're heart sick because this is happening, and I just can't stand by and not say anything fair enough i'll see what kind of answers i can get they've been doing this since the early 90s i can't remember it was 91 or 92 and Mm -hmm. if they're making a positive difference and they do it's it's even more than simply sitting around in these accountability circles too right they try to match people up with places to live and some furniture and you know some guidance to how to break the cycle of crime they've been involved with of course john howard and cindy are good people and they're doing similar work there so I mean, these organizations are part of the community. People might not be familiar with turnings and what they do, but the fact of the matter is, it's probably a good thing. It's like when you watch a hockey game, but you can't remember who who refereed. It's because they did yeah. a good job. Same thing with the folks at turnings. You don't might not know much about them, and you're probably lucky to not know because they're keeping people out of your garage, out of your home, out of your business, off the streets. They're doing good work, and we got to make sure it continues. They certainly are. They certainly are. They they go to HMP. Every day, you know, they're talking to people. 
that are incarcerated. It's it's amazing what they do, and I, I'm just really uh, disheartened. I'll follow up. I'm not going to swear. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Patty, because it's it's important. You know, it really is. Absolutely right. We'll see what kind of information we get, and uh, I'll see you again soon, Tina. Thanks for the call this morning. You bet. Take care. You too. Bye bye. You know, again, I think this boils back to things that we know to be true, but we lose sight of. If it wasn't for these types of community organizations, not-for-profits, charities, volunteers, can you imagine the state we'd be in here? How much horsepower is given to the province with volunteers and volunteer groups and organizations like Turnings? I mean, just imagine if we backed all of that out and put it on the plate of government. Number one, they couldn't replicate it. They could no, come nowhere close to replicating it for the same amount of money that's currently being uh, put back in the bank account of turnings for their operations. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, if you're talking about value for money spent, let's just see if we could paint the picture or if someone, one of the various ministers, could help us understand how much money goes to turnings, what we get for that money, versus if government had to take it on with the current structure of government and the behemoth that it is and the cost of doing anything inside the government, Where's the bang for the buck? Where's the community safety? Where's the public safety? Where are the measurable outcomes? And, of course, they'd be nowhere close to how effective they can be down turning. So good morning to the crowd down there. Keep up the good work. Let's see what's shaking on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout like you can do right now during this 1130 newscast, which we're going to hit right on time. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. Good morning, Joyce. You're on the air. Hi, Patty, me boy. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks. How about you? Oh, okay. Something's been bugging me. I tried to get through to your talk show yesterday. I was just telling the gentleman that answered the phone, takes the calls. Mm -hmm. And... I, it was busy, busy, busy forever. I couldn't get through to get on the talk show. And a woman cuts in, and she's talking about this medic alert and how you would have this thing for free. It goes around your neck and da-da-da, and she kept on about it. You won't have to pay a cent. And then she hung up on me. So I what? thought that's a, a very odd call, and I thought Patty and must have something new going with the show. No, I have no idea what you're talking about, to be honest. Well, I'm telling you, that's what happened. So somebody was cutting in on whatever was going on with your station. Well, that's something that's going on with the phone then, because I, that's the first I heard of anything like that. Yeah. And we don't, Dave does not uh, simply hang up on someone who's waiting but to get on. No. I was talking to a woman. This was a woman. Well, who, I have no idea who you would be talking to, because Dave's the only one in that booth. I well, don't know anyway, what happened there. Well, it's obvious something was going on. I'm phoning the same number, and I got you today and yesterday. It was busy, busy, busy. And like I said, this uh, woman caught in talking about medic alert, and if you're over 50, press 1, and I did that. And I thought, that's, that's odd, you know? Well, that's a gremlin in the phone system. That and I have no idea what happened there, and I don't think that's on our end, to be honest with you, because... Sometimes the phone is busy here, and so, you know, if it's busy, Dave will try to get to it as best he can, as quick as he can. But yeah. the whatever the medic alert thing is, I just really have no idea what that is. And now I don't either, and I thought, this is something underhanded going on here. Yeah, it's not on our end. We've no. got no interest in that. Also, I want to talk to you. It's been bugging me for months, 
and I didn't bring it up, but the, that woman and man in Portobello that tortured a cat in the bathroom, I'm sure you remember that, mm-hmm. and they cut it up and everything else, and it was their friend's cat. Anyways, um, I'm wondering if they're going to be charged, or is that just pushed by the wayside now? I have no idea. So weren't they charged already? I don't think so. I didn't hear anything on it. Okay. Well, I mean, I'd have to have a look around. I can't remember off the top of my head. But animal cruelty is a real spotlight uh, into the character of a person. I mean, whoever's willing to harm an animal, whether it be that kind of torture or any sort of willful abuse of an animal, really does speak volumes about what that person is all about, what they're like. Well, if they could do that to an animal, as far as I'm concerned, they'd do that to a person. Because they got no heart or no feelings or no empathy for anything. And uh, they're not fit to be on this planet, as far as I'm concerned. They're not. And they should be ashamed. And they're morons, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Anyways, I'm hoping the SPCA or somebody will check into it and come on and we can find out if anything was done about it because they should not get off with it. If they get off with it, there's lots of it going on in this province and everywhere else. And if they keep getting away, the government can bring in something, I'm sure. Oh, there's legislation regarding uh, animal cruelty. Of course, absolutely there is. Uh, And I mean, not to sensationalize anything, but there's lots of study and understanding about what the possibility is to elevate your crimes from abusing animals to abusing people. It's really clearly understood out there. And it's just dangerous stuff. But, you know, it's a funny thing that you mentioned it today because... I'm never really sure what topics are going to catch fire with the listening public to provoke further conversation on telephone calls. But when there's big stories of cruelty to animals, it immediately sparks the phone lines up. It's just wild how it happens. So, um, you know, we try to talk about the the issues of the day as best we can, but it's always most helpful if the listeners tell me what they want to talk about versus me putting issues forward. I just try to spark it up in the morning. But... Yeah, whenever animal cruelty is on the table, it gets reaction swift. I tell you, some of these animals are smarter smarter than people. They (laughs) are. They're so intelligent. And people seem to feel they got no feelings there. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with these people. I mean, think animals got feelings, you know. Of course they do. They understand what you're saying. And I mean, I got a friend got a German shepherd, and he'll say, go get my boots, and she'll go do it right away. Or go get your bowl if she wants her food, and she does that. And if she wants water, look, she won't give up till she gets her water. You know what I'm saying? So very intelligent dog, very intelligent. Yeah, it's been a while since we had a dog. When the last dog died, everyone became a little bit uh, gun-shy, didn't want to go through that sadness again. So well, it is maybe one of these sad. days. I, had, I ran a kennel business for years, and I mean... The people loved it, and even after I gave it up, uh, they wouldn't let up on, are you taking any animals? Because when I took animals, Patty, I'm telling you, they were treated better than people. I had, I had a beautiful kennel, and I mean top of the line. Everything new, clipboards, TV, uh, you name it, videos, they had it all. And um, <clears throat> I... Uh, I had to give it up. My husband passed away, so, I mean, it was a lot of work for me, right? And I did get attacked by one little dog I had here. 
And it's lucky I didn't knock myself out on the floor because it tore up my foot something fierce. And it was unprovoked. I was good to my animals, treated them the best. And this animal ripped into my foot like you wouldn't believe. And he was tugging my foot forward. And then he shaped me back and forth. And I was standing on one leg and I had nothing to support myself. And I'm trying to get free from this animal because I had a samoid in the next cage. And I was saying, I'll get to you next, sweetie, or whatever, because I always talk sweet to the dogs or the cats or whatever. And uh, this dog ripped the foot off me. I mean, the blood was going everywhere. And uh, I fell down. And as lucky I had a fan going out there uh, on the floor for the animals to make sure it stayed cool enough because it was summertime. Mm -hmm. I managed to pick that up and put it towards him because he was coming for my wrist. And I figure if I had no protection, boy, I would have got some tearing up. This was just a medium-sized mutt. <laughs> medium-sized mutt. I shouldn't be giggling because it's scary to go through to be attacked by a medium-sized mutt or a full-sized purebred. Well, uh, I tell you, if a little one can do that damage, imagine what a big one can do. Well, sure, and animals are unpredictable. Uh, Joyce, I'm glad you didn't get ripped to shreds, and I appreciate the call well, this morning. I, I had to go to the hospital and get treatment so I wouldn't get septicemia in my blood. And, boy, it was painful. Let me tell you, I was going for over a week to get that taken care of. How long ago was this? Oh, my God, uh, probably... Seven, eight years ago, maybe more. Time flies, Patty. <laughs> it sure does. Yeah, and something else I want to bring up. The government building a new hospital. Mm -hmm. Make me laugh. What a joke. You know what? No. They can't even take care of what they got now. They're closing hospitals. They just closed one for X amount of weeks. I mean, uh, no beds, no beds. I was thinking to myself. Uh, you got them in uh, storage closets and emergency rooms, out in the hallways. I was thinking if they got some free slabs down the morgue, why don't they put a few down there because they're doing everything else with the people? Yeah, it's too cold. It's disgusting. It is. It's, and they're expecting people are going to freeze the seniors and that. I mean, I'm lucky. I burn wood. I'm 75 years old, by the way. And... Uh, I burn wood, so I'm not worried about the heating thing, but I'm sure a lot of people burning oil and everything else and their mortgage rates going up and uh, food prices. I don't know how they're going to do it. I really don't. How much are you paying for a quart of birch? Uh, it's, um, well, usually I get it from the contractors, and it could be around 1100 sometimes more. Not cheap. No, it's not, and... <sighs> It breaks to the people getting oil, but, uh, I mean, what about the people, they're using their power saws, they're using their gas, their time, they yeah. got to take it home, they got to split it, they got to stack it. I mean, there's so much involved in it, and it's not easy. It doesn't just appear in the bed of a truck and stacked up in the backyard. No. Uh, I Joyce, mean, I, I stack wood. I do Joyce. men's work. I do. And I oh. love hard work. All right. Uh, but, uh, Anyways, about the hospital. Quickly. It's a farce. It's just something to keep people's mouths shut for a while. Oh, look what they're going to do. Don't hold your breath now till you get your hospital because uh, what they did with the one here on the West Coast, well, we saw what happened there where they promised this, this, and that, and they got diddly squat. But anyways, okay. Patty, it's been great talking to you. Oh, my distinct pleasure. 
What? My absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much. Take good care, Joyce. And you have a lovely day. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, what was I going to say there? I had something. But uh, anyway, I kind of lost my train of thought there at one point. I don't know how that happened. Uh, let's see here. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, you'll be in the queue. I can feel it in my water. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, curiously enough, uh, one of the issues that Joyce broached was she got interrupted while on hold here at VOCM. I was glad to now find out that that's not our that's not our doing, that's not our system, because several other people are reporting that, one, they were calling a toll-free number to speak with their bank and got interrupted with the same medical alert questions and person. Another person was doing some online searching for whatever the case may be for their parent and was interrupted with this medical alert thread with the exact same question. So good to know that it's not something that creeped into our system alone. Apparently, someone at Medi- medical alert has figured out how to get in on your internet search and or your telephone call. I don't know how and why that works the way it does, but just good to know that it is not on us couple of quick reminders. Uh, coming up tomorrow morning on the program, the Seniors Advocate Susan Walsh will be joining us. Thankfully, the government yesterday did commit to doing a comprehensive review of personal care and long-term care homes in the province. You know, and it, if it gets instigated because of the seven privacy breaches reported out in Central, that's fine, but there's so much more to it than simply these privacy breaches, which are atrocious, and it'd be interesting to know what the outcome is for the investigation that's now in the hands of the RCMP because that's completely unacceptable. And what possesses people to want to do that stuff in the first place, I'll never understand. So if you want to put something in my mind that I can put on the table insofar as questions for Susan Walsh tomorrow morning, feel free to do it on Twitter, email, or even give us a call here now before the end of the program to put your thoughts forward that you'd like to see considered in this provincial review of personal care and long-term care. There's also someone wants me to give out a reminder that there's still an opportunity, if you didn't have a time or an oppor- a chance, pardon me, to make a donation to Fiona Relief, the deadline for these, for instance, the concert promotion portion of this is midnight tonight. So you still have time to get in on it, and I'm still blown away by the numbers. We're still counting the money, apparently, but the uh, the concert itself, and big thanks to all the performers who put their talent on stage free of charge and the folks at Mary Brown Center who gave the facility free of charge, and, of course, the donation that came from Greg Roberts, the CEO and the owner of Mary Brown's, $335,000, pretty much a half a million dollar day of donations from Greg Roberts. That's terrific. So we're at around $1.6 or $1.7 million, but still an opportunity for you to get in on it, and we'll still see it matched by the federal government, I'm led to believe. So that is a good thing. Let's see here before we run out of time this morning. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi there. Just want to just want to vent a little bit. I'm not going to talk about death ed this time because uh, I don't need to this time. Okay. I, I nearly had two accidents yesterday around the Rollins Cross area. I was going over to pick up my my granddaughter and uh, take her to get uh, to the doesn't matter where I was going anyway. I was going over to get my granddaughter, going across the street from Monkstown Road, going down towards Prescott. The light had turned green. There was a couple cars in front of me. They went, and as I was going across the Harvey Road area there, car came down Harvey Road. Light was red, never bothered to stop. Turned right, right in front of me. Nearly got his, his uh, passenger side door. Stopped, blew the horn. The guy gets pissed off at me and gives me the finger and says, you know, come on. So I started to go around him, and he went forward again. 
So this time I put my car in, in neutral, pulled the handbrake up, and I started to get out, and he went on. Now I'm 76 years old. I'm a little bit, you know, I think you, we met once before in Sobeys, so I have a little bit of size. I also have a black belt, second damn black belt in Taekwondo, so I, I know how to take care of myself, and I would have taken care of that side of the gun. Okay. <laughs> so then uh, after I get done with my, my granddaughter, I came up, was coming up uh, Prescott Street, and as you get to the top, you have the Prescott Street has the right of way to turn right. And again, I'm in a line, and I start to turn turn right. And this car, who was supposed to yield, decided not to and ran on through. And again, I said, do you know what yield means? And so the guy gives me his finger. So I said to him, that's your IQ, your driving IQ. And again, we're waiting at the light, and he says to me, come on. So again, I start to get out of the car. The light changes. He goes on. But anyway. We got to do something about the people who don't understand about stoplights and yield. There's been a, uh, the government had a, uh, uh, a public service announcement on about zipper turns. And they're great. I've been using them all my life, a zipper turn. Maybe what they should do is have another public service announcement on explaining what yield right away means and that you have to stop at a red light before you take a right hand turn. Anyway, thanks for letting me vet, Patty. No problem. Look, Brawlins Cross, when they reconfigured it, it was confusing for a while, and there were some concerns that were vo- uh, were uh, vocalized by certainly folks that use it all the time, and it's always been a pedestrian nightmare. But was it bad enough that required the reconfig back to its original uh, original form? Because Brawlins Cross is a mess in the first place. The worst thing about Brawlins Cross for me, though, is... Some years, when it requires line painting and it's not done, it's one thing for me to navigate it because I've gone through it a million times. But just imagine if you were here visiting and staying at the Sheraton and try to make your way to wherever that included going through Rollins Cross without paint on the road. (laughs) How do people absolutely pull that off? I have no idea. It's It's a strange part of town. But it basically all boils down to being aware and taking your time. If those two things were done by every motorist, we'd have no problems at Rollins Cross or probably anywhere else. That's right. Follow the rules of the road. Period. That's it. Follow the rules. The laws of the road are there for a reason. Follow them. Fair enough, John. All right. Thanks, bud. No problem. Anytime. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, and I mentioned to Dave, you know, so many of us would be on a similar routine for a time that we get up and time we leave the house and time we get to work. I really do find myself to be a creature of habit. It's not superstition necessarily, but I, and I told Dave, and it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. The past five work days, I've been on my way to work as I merge from the Cove Road onto the Outer Ring Road. I have encountered so the one guy, this guy in the red Dodge pickup, is coming uh, south on the Cove Road while I'm going north. So I merge on. I have the right of way to continue on that ramp. The exact same truck has met me in the exact same space five work days in a row. Not one vehicle behind or one vehicle ahead. Right there. And now he's not very kind with the, you know, give me the comfort that he is going to stop. He kind of rolls very close to me as I'm trying to make my way past. But I'm telling you, it's almost to the inch that I've met the same vehicle five work days in a row. So anyway, let's leave with what is an absolutely lovely story. And as you know, I ask for positive stories here all the time. And this one is a Halloween-related positive story. I'm going to take it right from our website. And I heard this particular gentleman Uh, the father, on with uh, Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy on the VOC Morning Show this morning. I'll read it right straight from the website. 
A nine-year-old boy from Southlands couldn't go trick-or-treating last night as he was recovering from eye surgery, so Halloween came to him, and in a big way. William O'Donnell suffered an eye injury while taking in the fireworks at the Canada Day celebration last summer, an injury that resulted in three laser surgeries and him missing out on summer and spending 45 days on bed rest. It was later determined that he had a tear in the retina, which meant surgery last Wednesday. The recovery regimen called for two more weeks of complete bed rest, either lying down on his side or face down with his head between his arms. All this meant no Halloween. His parents posted a request to the community Facebook page called Southlands Families that people stop by the house leave a treat for William. They did, but the bag they left outside to collect the goodies was stolen earlier. Imagine. The family took to Facebook again to let everyone know what happened. His father, Cody O'Donnell, says the response floored them. There were two people on the step that there were cars stopping and people not giving, getting out to give treats. They had enough items to fill a queen-sized mattress. A stark contrast to humanity after the first bag of treats had been stolen. Cody says he, was, he saw a lot of amazing people in the world and that he could write for hours about the experience. Situations that, such as nurses surprising William with gift bags and a stranger knocking hundreds of dollars off a gaming PC. So while there's bad people out there willing to steal his bag of goodies... When Cody O'Donnell went back to Facebook to make people aware of what had happened, they showed up in droves. You can only imagine the difference that made to Cody and, of course, to young William at nine years of age. So not only do we uh, thank people for showing their kindness in examples like that, but a special hello to the O'Donnell family and a speedy recovery and hello, a special hello to William O'Donnell as he recovers from yet another surgery to deal with a torn retina. Go get him, kid. All right, big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And yes, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, well, I suppose I should check make sure that Jolene is in the booth, is she? Are they ready to go? Okay. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.